First of all, I'd like to read to you a little bit from John O'Donoghue. He's a very well-loved uh, Irish poet. Somehow I was going to read this at the wedding yesterday, but it didn't happen. So we can pretend we're at the wedding. The Greeks believed uh, that time had secret structure. There was the moment of epiphany when time suddenly opened and something was revealed in luminous clarity. There was the moment of Clesis, when time got entangled and directions became confused and contradictory. There was also the moment of Kairos. This was the propitious moment. Time opened up in kindness and promise. All the energies cohered to offer a fecund occasion of initiative, creativity, and promise. Part of the art of living wisely is to learn to recognize and attend to such profound openings in one's life. In the letters between Boris Pasternak and Olga Ivanskaya, there is a beautiful recognition. When a great moment knocks on the door of your life, its sound is often no louder than the beating of your heart, and it is very easy to miss it. I want to repeat. When a great moment knocks on the door of your life, its sound is often no louder than the beating of your heart, and it is very easy to miss it. To live a conscious life, we need to constantly refine our listening. To lead a conscious life, we need to constantly refine our listening. And I wanted to just sort of add to what John O'Donoghue said. We need to constantly refine our being present. That's similar to listening, it's part of um, refine our in the moment mindfulness. And maybe there's another way to express it too. When we are able to do these things, to be fully listening, to be fully present, to be fully mindful, what we're paying attention to grows and deepens. So it's not always so easy because we are involved in lives which draw us away from the moment very often, draw us away from the present very often. And so coming to the temple is about learning to how to be more present in each moment. And there's a number of practices that we do. The Dalai Lama, 
said that the most important practice for spiritual life is routine. And somebody else just this morning at breakfast was talking about how developing a routine for himself made the difference between him being able to do the things he wanted, the wholesome things he wanted to do or not. It's like you have to build them into your life because otherwise life is so busy that there's no time, apparently. But then there's another wonderful phrase which I picked up from somewhere. There is always time for the right thing. Well, that's a koan because you have to figure out, well, what is the right thing? Because we get seduced on that one sometimes. So what you pay attention to grows. And there's always time for the right thing. A couple of weeks ago, some of you who are here might remember that I offered some little teachings from some of the Buddha's great disciples. And I'm going to offer them again because I found out that a lot of times people forget. <laughs> and I know there's some new people here today. I'm going to offer these as, and then following them, I'm going to offer some things from just regular people who are not sort of the big name Buddhist disciples. They are the ways to develop routines in our lives, I think. Okay, so, and I'm going to name the disciples and I'll be interested if some of you can remember them. Hey, Otong. She hasn't been here hardly ever since she, um, since she had that little girl. <laughs> here they both are. <laughs> Wonderful. I wish I was, I should switch to a Jataka tail right away. <laughs> okay, so the first disciple, remember that the question was asked by the first disciple of the Buddha, Sariputra. And it was, you know, how can you illuminate the Gosenga Salwood? And that question doesn't need to be that question. It is, how can you be with the challenge right in front of you? How can you illuminate? How can you be present? How can you listen? So the great Ananda the first, uh, disciple, what he did was he learned a great deal because he was with the Buddha all the time. And he remembered what he learned. And then he consolidated it and taught it to the lay students, men and women, and to the disciples, men and women. So study and remembering, Ananda. The next disciple, when it came to him, was Anuruddha. Maybe I should say them, you should say them after me. This is how we learn things sometimes. First disciple who had such a good memory and learned things, Ananda. Ananda. The next one is Aniruddha. 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 Yeah, and Aniruddha is known for his um, 
divine eye, which means his perspective. He really had wonderful perspective on things. When he saw things, he saw them clearly. Because his divine eye was purified, free from anger, greed, and delusion. So that was Aniruddha, perspective, purification. Next is Ravata. Ravata. Ravata delighted in solitary meditation. And he loved to dwell, remember I said, in empty huts. Mainly he loved to dwell in simplicity with not so much going on. So that was Ravata. So we've got Ananda, Anuruddha, and Ravata. Okay, the next one, he was a really famous uh, disciple for his austerities. He was a forest dweller himself, and then he spoke in praise of forest dwelling. He was an alms food eater himself, and spoke in praise of eating alms food. He was a refuge rag wearer himself, and spoke in praise of wearing refuge rag robes. And then skipping down to some, he has attained concentration virtue and wisdom himself and speaks in, in praise of the attainment of these, etc., etc. So he spoke from first-hand experience. He knew what it was like and its benefits. So he spoke about it and spoke in praise of it. What was his name? Mahamagalam. That was a core thing. And then Sariputra said to the Buddha, we've been having this discussion. Oh, I missed one. This is one you all really like. Mahamogalana. Mahamogalana. And he is famous for Dharma dialogue. He really liked to talk to people and have, you know, Dharma discussions. So there is a place for discussion, especially if it's Dharma discussion. Otherwise, it can deteriorate a little to, I know this fact. Okay, so we've got all these disciples, and then Sariputra went to the Buddha, and he said, would you like to hear what these disciples have said, which is really good for providing illumination in the Selwood forest? And Buddha said, yes, please. So then Sariputra repeated them all, and he said, which one do you think is the best? And the Buddha said, you have all spoken well, each in his own way. Hear also from me. And then the Buddha said, I shall not, oh no, when a bhikkhu has returned from his alms round after his meal, he sits down, folds his legs crosswise, sets his body erect, 
and establishing mindfulness in front of him resolves. I shall not break this sitting position until through not clinging in my mind, through not clinging, my mind is liberated from the taint. That kind of bhikkhu could eliminate this gosinga cell tree wood. So the Buddha sits down after paying attention to everything about sitting down, focuses his mind and says, I'm here until I get it. Okay. So here's some guideline, a little bit of a guideline for you, Dharma discussion, having a little simplicity in your life. And you might think, well, everything should be simple, but it's not these days, you know? But you can take a little time to have some simplicity. Come here, being quiet for this whole time, doing some simple work. So a lot of times we think, well, I can't do simplicity in my life, it's just too much. But there are times when we can have these bahuhata, etc. So there are little things here that can support you in your practice and developing a routine, as the Dalai Lama said. Now, I'd like to um, just share the practice of my family who live in Sydney, Illinois. And I visited them uh, for about eight or nine days and got to know them. One of the most important practices that they do, there are four kids and two adults, is making the school bus in time in the morning. <laughs> because it, it comes at 20 past seven. So that means the kids have to get up about quarter to seven, which is really hard for them because they like to stay up at night later. And you know, they're always one more story, a snack, a snack, one more story. So catching the bus in the morning. And then on the way, catching, being picked up by me or whoever is at the bus in the afternoon. So those are some routines that are very important in their lives. Also at meals, they always do the meal gata. They hold their hands around the table, and we have a meal gata, gata that we do, and that they learned at camp, because we did it a lot at camp. And so they always do the meal gata, and they always talks about, talk about the highs and lows of their day. And it's really sometimes very difficult because they fight over food, or they, get, they won't eat, or this or that. But when it works, it's really beautiful to hear the highs and the lows of the day. And how they kind of, I liked it when my teacher smiled at me. It felt like that was a high. It felt like she was really able to be present to find that. And one day my grandson said, there was nothing high for this day for me. And everybody just, oh. It was a kind of really beautiful moment for us to kind of send some support to him. Mm. Yeah. So those were those are some. They also all go to church, to the Christian church in town on Wednesday night for a potluck. Mm. Because Jason, my daughter's partner, is developing Christian values, so go. And there's one other thing that they do. Yeah. Jason goes on Sundays to play the piano for the church. 
So these are some of the, I mean, they have other rituals too, but the ones that could, would accord and we would have a, equivalents as we're working on our beliefs in the family. Then I received a letter uh, from a student of mine who uh, lives at a distance. And I like to read it to you because you get a feeling for his passage. When we do this, it's not that I'm trying to make cookie cutter Buddhists from each of you, with each of you. It's that I'm trying to find ways that each of you has a propensity for practice that really turns you deeper and on. Anyway, so, hello, Haju, how has your summer been? I hope full of bees and flowers and sweat and dirt. We are all done with our traveling adventure and enjoying our home, our dog, and our proximity to beach here in Chicago. I'm sorry we missed peace camp. Hosea and Sherry said it was very nice and that the new grounds provided lots of lovely space. I wanted to write and give you a little update on my practice. Being home, he and his wife and daughter took one year off from school and work to travel. And they went all around the world. And, they did, and he asked me for practice before he left. He knew he would have some time. So, being home has been hard for consistency. I sit every day, but I haven't quite gotten into the kind of rhythm that allowed me to meditate 60 to 90 minutes a day while traveling. Having spent time with Thich Nhat Hanh's Sutra on the full awareness of breathing, and then moved on to bring me the rhinoceros, these were some <laughs> suggestions for me because of his particular temperament, I have been working with the Wadu from the Bodhidharma story. The emperor asked, have mm. I built many temples? What merit accrues from this? And Bodhidharma answers, no merit. It has had a profound effect. When I connect with it while sitting or washing the dishes or walking to the train, it sometimes flattens the whole world out and takes my judgment and prioritizations off the table entirely. The piece of trash on the street is equal to the flower. The flower is equal to my hand. My hand is equal to my breath. My breath is equal to my thoughts. It makes me feel so at home in the universe rather than pitted against it. Also, several of the Buddhist guided meditations I occasionally do emphasize a super generous and relaxed attitude toward myself, my thoughts, and my practice. Thoughts will arise. Don't worry about it. That's what thoughts do. Just come back to your practice. I find that this attitude, when combined with consistent, sustained practice, is very helpful to me. It creates that effortless effort that Sunim talks about. It's like I'm parenting myself, loving but firm, easy but persistent. I want to read that again because I think it's a little bit of Dharma wisdom in the kind of category of the great disciples. After several of the Buddhist guided 
also several of the Buddhist guided meditations I occasionally do emphasize a super generous and relaxed attitude toward myself, my thoughts, and my practice. Thoughts will arise. Don't worry about it. That's what thoughts do. Just come back to your practice. I find that this attitude, when combined with consistent, sustained practice, is very helpful to me. It creates that effortless effort. It's like I'm parenting myself. Loving but firm, easy but persistent. I hope you are well and that your health is good. I look forward to seeing you soon in the Dharma. So here's another one. This guy is a completely different character. <laughs> You'll see by what he reads, what he writes. And I have to tell you that I've known him for about 25 years. When he used to come to the temple a lot, but I hardly ever see him now. And he used to always send his art. He would come sometimes and play this toy piano for us. He's just really a character. You'll see. But he also has a practice, which I think is really beautiful. Dear Haju, I practice no Zen now. After hearing a guy thinking it at the Black Lotus Bar, it is a Zen art bar, no Zen. Is that, is Zen, is Zen that, it's Zen that is empty of Zen. My paintings, he's, a, he's an artist, my paintings, CDs of music, DVDs of videos, written music, sometimes sculpture, poetry, little art, photographs, and toys for kids are in a box for people to take free in a coffee house here in Clawson. I got rid of my internet because it got hacked so much that I couldn't stand it. No more media for me. Think local, act local, small town life. I've slowed way down on poetry because I couldn't find a style that I liked. He used to send a poem every month. I may quit. I don't know. <laughs> I live in a wonderful apartment halfway underground with a big picture window at ground level. I like to sit there and listen to the wind. I eat bologna, still smoke heavily, drink a little beer and a lot of coffee. Like I said, no Zen. I'm free. <laughs> I have a little altar with a homemade sculpture of Kuan Yin. I like the Chinese name. Kuan Yin is the Chinese name for the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion. And then he says at the end, one prostration, bad knees, mudra practice, and three bows in the morning. Kong Sen. Lovely. I think it is anyway. I don't know what your version is that, but I hope you all have some kind of service, some kind of different things that you're doing. And you could come up with your own version of this letter. And I say that particularly to people who have kids, who have teenagers, who have really difficult lives. Yeah, he really has a difficult life. His mother died, his father died, he was living with them, and then he was by himself. Now he's got a beautiful apartment in Clawson, and he loves to listen to the wind. So you may have more ambition for your practice, but I hope that you are a sincere and sort of open about it as it comes from you. 
Okay. So, coming up, as most of you know, is an opportunity to kind of make a commitment to a practice. It's called the practice period. And it's an opportunity where we give you a whole list of things and then suggest if you have other things, you could do those, where you make a commitment for 10 weeks and you meet regularly with the group, a practice period group, and a couple of our, um, our folks at this time, it's going to be Tonson and, and Jagwa. I might have had that stroke. I can't remember names. Um, so it's coming up, and there'll be an opportunity a lot of times. If you're setting up an environment for your the, the routine of a practice to set in and become something like long term, that it's good to have other people that you're working with. It's good to come to the temple as Ocham has this morning, you know, finally, you know, because it really is a way to get inspired to keep doing some of the things you might not otherwise do by yourself. So please consider the practice period. There is a little room for a couple more people to sign up on the list in the lobby. And then besides further setting up your environment, I like to suggest that somehow you actually put something in your environment that reminds you of practice. I mean, it could be as beautiful and fancy and elaborate as this kind of an altar. I know somebody who has a big Buddha figure and all kinds of um, beautiful things that go with it and in a room in their home. We all probably cannot do that. And then I saw hundreds of pictures taken by our Chicago Temple member of people's home altars. Mm -hmm. And they were just so wonderful and different. Some had Buddha figures, some had flowers, some had pictures. Some are on the wall, some are on tables, some are on the floor. The idea is that you set up your environment to remind you of your practice. I have a feeling that while well, everybody has, you know, a, probably a computer and that kind of equipment around and music equipment around and food and books and all of this. And what I'm suggesting is that it's important to develop a kind of environment that reminds you of your practice, where you may even sit down and do your practice there, because as soon as you look, say, oh, I can do one minute. There's always time for the right thing. So that means that you have to set up that. And it could be even at your table doing the meal gossip. This food is a gift of the whole universe, is one version. From this, our body, mind is nourished, our practice sustained. Gratefully, we accept this meal. And if you're with someone, you can hold hands and everyone's sweet. You make it up. It's, just, it's really important to do that. And then, once you've got, you know, some, okay, this is part of my life, then there's ways to enrich those routines. I already said, doing them from time to time with others, 
doing some study. There's a beautiful um, little part of study from the Buddha's um, scripture on mindfulness. And just reading this the other day brought me remembering something. Here it is. As you breathe in, O monk, breathe in with the whole body. As you breathe out, O monk, breathe out with the whole body. Sometimes we think of our breath as just here and here. But when we begin to experiment, we can find that really breathing and the aliveness which comes with breath is throughout our whole body. So just reading that, you think, huh, when I sit today, I'm going to experiment with that a little bit. And so you come and maybe I say something, or come and several patients, I'm going to experiment. This is how you enrich your routines. And enriching them brings more of a sense of curiosity to your life. And so then you keep working it. It's not as interesting to go outside, inside. Buddha said is where all of our learning takes place. Also, not being afraid to ask for help. Some people say to me, you know, I can't, I just can't sit for more than about two or three minutes and I just feel like I want to get up and run away. Well, there's lots of ways to work with that. I'm going to ask somebody. We have um, a prison project at the Huron Valley Prison, women. Some of our people go there every week. And it's just, just going there and being with those people and the people being with us has made such a difference in their lives. And helping. All it has to do with us. Sometimes it's hard to do that. Well, I think that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs>